Good morning and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have a fun one for you all. We're going to talk about PlayStation, Sony, Warner Brothers Discovery, and digital ownership, or whether ownership is even the right word. So hopefully that all sounds interesting to you. This is a virtual legality, not a hangouts and headlines. So we're going to dive right into the law, right from the get-go. And then we're going to come back for questions and comments at the end. So if you could save those for that period of time, we're going to do those comments. You can mark them with a Q or a at Hogue Law or a Super Chat or whatever else you want to do. But we are going to do that at the end so that we can go through the legal questions that I want to cover before we get there. And we might also have a special guest to talk about these issues with you who is sitting in the background right now. But we'll get there when we get there. So, folks, let's talk about the law. If you are a Sony fan, a PlayStation owner, or just someone who follows these things online, you might have seen the other day that PlayStation put out a legal update notice, which is just great language. Discovery entitlements affected titles. As of 31 December 2023, due to our content licensing arrangements with content providers, you will no longer be able to watch any of your previously purchased Discovery content, and the content will be removed from your video library. Finishing off with, of course, we sincerely thank you for your continued support. As we say, we're going to remove this content that you purchased. And the use of the word purchased is interesting. We're going to talk about that as well, because obviously anything that you purchase that is just going to get removed isn't exactly owned by you, isn't exactly purchased by you as we would ordinarily think about it. So we're going to talk about what this means. We're going to talk about how it was responded to online. And we're going to talk about the Copyright Act and what intellectual property really means in the United States. So one thing I will note is that a number of people contacted me and talked about things that are happening in Europe or in Australia or in Canada and other places. And one of the things I will mention is I'm a United States lawyer. I'm a contract attorney. I look at terms and conditions. I draft them. I revise them. And what I can talk to you about from the United States perspective is that the default rule here in the United States is that we want to give validity. We want to give power to people entering into contracts. Now, that can be adjusted by certain courts for reasons of public policy and otherwise, and folks want to apply those rules to things like this. But if you're online and you see somebody saying end user license agreements don't do anything or you can't limit contracts because perpetual licenses are goods and not services, et cetera, et cetera, those are various bits of legal understanding in other jurisdictions. And the United States, for the most part, is going to interpret what's in a contract as valid unless it has a really strong reason to not believe such. Now, before we get into a little bit of that law, I do want to remind folks and myself that this channel is supported by viewers and listeners like you through Player and Patreon, which you can see links to in the description, and by memberships on this YouTube channel and Super Chats to the channel as well. So thank you so much for that. None of this would be possible without all of that support that we get from the audience and the community, and I really appreciate it so, so much. This is mostly a reminder to myself but I want to make sure that folks know that this is made possible by you. Now we have IGN, which is, of course, a video game website covering this, saying Sony pulls Discovery videos PlayStation users already own. Again, interesting use of the language here, which is part of the story from a legal perspective, sparking concern over our digital future. We sincerely thank you for your continued support, says the subheadline. And it goes over the little notice that we, we talked about and says from IGN, the decision has sparked a backlash online, no surprise, and fueled concern around ownership of digital media. Video game preservation is a hot topic within the industry, but the issue of content removal from digital platforms 
is top of mind of movie and TV makers too. Last month, Oscar-winning filmmaker Guillermo del Toro backed Oppenheimer director Christopher Nolan in championing physical media amid controversial moves by streamers that have seen some films pulled from availability. Yes, something along those lines, IGN. I would also offer that one of the arguments that people have had with respect to passive media, your movies and your television shows, is that a lot of streamers and services in the digital landscape have done things like ad disclaimers or removed content or removed whole episodes of TV shows. And I think that's what the creative forces behind these things are reacting to a little bit more, which is to say you're going to have a little bit more protection if you have access to those digital files on some kind of physical media than you will if it's just a technological solution, primarily because a technological solution can be altered behind the scenes. It's not so much that the law protects you more from a physical standpoint. We'll see. We'll talk about that in just a second. Although there is one important bit of the law that does make owners of physical media a little bit more protected than owners of digital media. And I say owners there because that's the language I see in the IGN article and the, the language that PlayStation itself used. But obviously, to the extent somebody can just go and take something from you that you purchased, that you spent money on, you don't really own it in any normal colloquial sense. Redditor Skaternator said they would never lose the Discovery shows they had paid for. Now, IGN, I love you. I obviously am on the BitCast with Travis, an IGN writer, and I, I use this website a lot, but I'm not sure how we transition to random Redditor says something. I'm not sure what news value that has, but we'll read it anyway. I just received an email from PlayStation about how the end of the year, due to licensing arrangements, I will no longer be able to watch any of my previously purchased Discovery content. Is there a way I can save this content? I use PlayStation 4, but I have bought many seasons of shows such as Dual Survival that I do not wish to lose. I was actually under the impression that since I owned it, I, would, I wouldn't ever lose it. Now, this is going to get back to talking about what's in terms and conditions, which we're going to do here, because that's what we do in virtual legality. But under the impression is also an important kind of notion here, because one of the things we're going to discuss is, do consumers have the appropriate amount of information for what they're actually spending money on right now? And I would argue no. But certainly the existence of virtual legality, the reason I have these conversations here in this space with you all is to hopefully help educate, help inform for folks that are thinking about what to spend their hard-earned money on. And digital is one of those areas where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. There is currently no way to back up purchased PlayStation Store video content from a PlayStation 4 or PlayStation 5, says IGN. They cannot be transferred to a disc by any means. Now, this is a little bit strong language here, certainly from a legal perspective from IGN. What I think they mean by this is that the PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 consoles themselves don't facilitate a technological solution for putting something on disc. It doesn't burn a CD for you or anything like that. But obviously, here in the world of 2023, folks know that you can use a telephone and other hardware and a display device like a television to get mostly what you need from archival copies, if you're so inclined to do that, which isn't to say that that isn't extra legal in and of itself. Depends, we'll talk about that as well. But by any means is probably a little bit strong for this article. Suffice it to say, the main purpose of IGN writing this article is that a lot of people are upset about it. I'm expecting a full refund. He's probably gonna be waiting for that for a long time and we'll talk about that as well. I purchased all these TV shows on your platform and you're all removing my purchase content. Wild, if you purchased any of these titles via PlayStation, they're going to disappear soon and too bad for you. Buying digital media is simply renting with an open-ended expiration date. They can and will take it from you if they feel like it. Talk about that. If only played PlayStation, I'd be really concerned about an all-digital future. This is bad and it's crazy no one is talking about it. Well, 
I feel seen, but I am talking about it. It just took me a minute. Gamers are starting to receive this email from PlayStation telling them that all content on the Discovery streaming service will be removed on December 31st, 2023. It's actually not the Discovery streaming service. It's Discovery content. It's things made by Discovery. And obviously part of this story, if you haven't been following the machinations of studios and media, is that Warner Brothers Discovery is going through a transition both of management and in what it decides to do with all of its endeavors. So you see things like pulling movies and pulling content for tax write-offs out of the Mac streaming service and out of various other stores. I doubt Sony is the only store that is going to have this happen to it, but we have to talk about the business relationships here because Sony can be blamed. I think they should be blamed in part, but it takes two to tango. And Discovery is also part of the story here as to why this is happening. So it's essentially both sides of the coin here why this is happening, and we'll talk about that as well. PlayStation announced that individuals who purchase Discovery content through their platform will have their purchase content removed December 31st, 2023. This is why internet piracy is alive and well. And we'll get back to talking about that in just a minute as well. And I've made a long list of things we'll get back to talking about, but I promise we'll get there. Oh, wow. PlayStation is going to be in for a class action lawsuit over the Discovery stuff. I think that's probably right. I don't know why the Discovery stuff has hit so much harder than some of the stuff we saw last year. And I'll talk about that as well. I love how, thanks to the Discovery stuff with PlayStation, people have finally realized that unless you own it physically or have a DRM-free downloaded copy, you own nothing today. You just own the license to play that media, and it can be revoked at any time. Now, technically speaking, even if you own it on disc, there are things that can happen that can change your access physically, but we'll leave that aside for a minute. Looks like that thing you might have always been worried about is finally happening. People are losing access to movies and shows they bought digitally through PlayStation. Guess you were renting that movie this whole time. So here's the thing from a legal perspective. Let's talk about this from the Copyright Act side of things, from the intellectual property side of things. And even though I said I want to just plow through the law stuff, I do want to make special mention of the fact that I do see there have been gifts of memberships made in the chat. I really appreciate that. All of that goes to helping support the channel. And I'm trying to pull those up through StreamYard, but having a little difficulty. So do bear with me. And... Callista, thank you so much for gifting five whole memberships. I really appreciate that. As I said, all of that makes all of this possible. So thank you so much. And I'll see if I can get this other one to pop up. Brentwood Sheik has also gifted 10 whole memberships. And I'm very thankful for that. I just can't get that to come up on the screen right this second. So I apologize, Brentwood Sheik. But know that I am very, very thankful for that support. I really appreciate it. All right. Now, let's talk about... Legal statutes. It's your favorite reason for coming over to the Hoglaw YouTube channel, right? So as is one of our most commonly referenced statutes, let's talk about copyright and intellectual property rights in general. So as folks on the internet are keen to make note of, intellectual property is a legal fiction, right? It doesn't exist in any material way that we know of in the real world. It's a set of rules that was adopted into law that protects this notion of intellectual property in the makers of that intellectual property. So in this case, we're talking about discovery. We're talking about the studio that makes movies or television shows and what they have the exclusive right to do under the law. And that includes reproducing the copyrighted work. Of course, it's copyright. So that's copying the copyrighted work to prepare derivative works based upon the copyrighted work and to distribute copies of the copyrighted work. So overall, when you make something, whether that's a Mythbusters or something else, and you then need to get it out to the digital landscape of people that want to watch your Mythbusters or something else, then 
you have the exclusive right to reproduce it and to distribute it. So you enter into a contract with somebody like Sony or somebody like Amazon or somebody like Voodoo or anyone else to get your content out. And then they have to agree to some contract terms with you. So when we think about what the digital landscape really is, Sony's a storefront. They don't own the copyrights to the Mythbusters. They don't own the copyrights to anything that they sell from Discovery through their store. They own a light, they have a license to distribute those content pieces to you. And if that license ends, Sony doesn't have the rights anymore. So they have to do something to prevent their violation of the copyright held by Discovery. Now, when I describe that, you might think to yourself, Rick, okay, but this isn't happening in every storefront. Can't you enter into contract terms that allow you to continue to distribute after the end of a contract if you've received money for it or other things that would protect Discovery, but also protect the consumers of Sony? And to that, I answer, yes, you can enter into those contracts. And that's what I mean when I say things online, like keeping your licensing house in order. But we're still on kind of the front lines of the digital media push. It really hasn't been that many years at all. And so what you're seeing right now is some of the separation between lawyers and companies that were willing to negotiate for a few more rights for their consumers and those that weren't. So when I see Sony doing this, and this isn't the first time that Sony has done this, if you remember last year, we talked about this as, can they do that PlayStation to remove owned movies, this time of Studio Canal. Sony announced in August of 31st, 2022, due to our quote-unquote evolving licensing agreements with content providers, you will no longer be able to view your previously purchased Studio Canal content, and it will be removed from your video library. All I can determine from the push in the news this time is that more folks care about the Mythbusters than care about the Hunger Games. That's really up to you. I really can't speak to the validity of either of those positions, but PlayStation has had this happen a couple of times. And I noted it last year because one of the things I think people should note is what stores are keeping track of your licenses and are doing a better job negotiating those contracts with their underlying content providers and which are not. I'm not against Sony or PlayStation overall. I play tons of PlayStation games. And in fact, one of the things I wanted to say as part of this video is that when you think about what I have to say on this topic, understand that I am primarily a digital consumer. Even though I'm gonna talk about these reasons why digital is not as protected as physical and that this is a bad look for Sony, I am a digital consumer. I prefer the convenience and ease of access of digital. I prefer that it tends to get to me in a more pristine state than reading a disc, whether it's a Blu-ray or a CD. And so I like digital uh, use, I like digital libraries, but, the consumer can still look at these things and say, okay, well, with Studio Canal off, with Discovery off, should I be willing to spend as much money in the Sony PlayStation Network store? And I would answer that I would be less likely to, right? If I'm looking at this issue and I'm trying to determine where I should spend my hard-earned dollars, I'm going to look for a couple of things. One, I'm going to look for trying to get as close to the content owner as possible. So if Discovery has a store, I'm probably buying from that store. And if uh, I want an HBO show, uh, that's still Discovery. If I want a Disney show, I'm probably gonna go look at the Disney store or something that Disney owns and try to get as close as possible. After that, I'm gonna look for stores that don't have this happen, that have clearly entered into better contracts or are willing to negotiate when somebody like Discovery comes to the table and says, actually, we want double our licensing fee or whatever it is that Discovery asked for as part of this negotiation or that Studio Canal asked for and say, okay, well, it's important enough to us to maintain good ties with our consumers that we're going to enter into that agreement, even though we think we're 
over a barrel on this and then do a better job entering into the first agreement the next time. I'm in favor of the parties that are closest to these negotiations, like content distribution from Discovery or Studio Canal, being more beneficial for the people that actually give them money, that buy content from them. So I want these storefronts feet to be held to the fire. And I think that's a justifiable reaction from folks. What I think is less justifiable are the folks that jumped immediately to self-help, extra legal self-help like piracy. I think that from a justice standpoint, I understand how your brain gets there. I just don't think it's the best way to prevent situations from happening like this. And as for whether Sony can do this, the answer is yes, from a contract perspective, certainly in the United States. And we'll talk about why as we look at the PlayStation Network terms of service and user agreement. Good times. All right. So in this agreement, we see this is when you're accessing the PlayStation Network. You accept the agreement by creating an account for the PlayStation Network, by making a purchase on the PlayStation Store, or through any other use of the PlayStation Network, which actually could be pretty broad depending on what you're doing with your PlayStation. If you do not agree to these terms, you will not be able to create an account and will not be able to access the PlayStation Network or its products or services. So everybody enters into this, which is what we call a contract of adhesion in the law, which is one of the areas in which a class action or other lawsuit on these terms might be successful, is to say a contract of adhesion is a contract you don't negotiate, right? You're not sitting there across the table from Sony. Sony's saying, if you want to use this product that you purchase, presumably attached to a multi-hundred dollar piece of hardware that you bought from a different store, then you're going to enter into these terms. And most people, even if they read these, which a lot of people are not, even if they read these, are going to say, yeah, well, okay, you've got me over that proverbial barrel. And so I'm going to enter into this or else I can't use this hardware that I purchased. Now, depending on where you reside, you may have rights under applicable local laws that cannot be limited or waived. Nothing in this agreement limits any such rights under those local laws, which is why you get some of the comments you get online. So all of these end user license agreements, every contract really, is going to have a provision that says this is to be read by any court that might be looking it over as complying with whatever laws might apply. And to the extent whatever applicable local laws might conflict with this, we yield to those because they have to. But unless you're in a specific jurisdiction where you know you have additional rights, you should assume by default that what they say in this document is going to be held against you. So let's get a little further down into these terms of service. PlayStation services, including PlayStation Network, PlayStation Store, PlayStation Plus, PlayStation Video, PlayStation Direct, and those websites, products, and services that Sony Interactive Entertainment and its affiliates offer through or in connection with PlayStation Network or your account are gonna be defined as PSN services. PSN content includes the games, music, movies, services, virtual currency, vouchers, virtual communities, and other digital products or content through PlayStation Network. Availability of PSN, its features and its content varies depending on which PlayStation device or other device you are using to access PSN and is subject to change at any time. Now, from a legal perspective, note what this says. Availability of the network itself is subject to change at any time. We're talking about content within the network, content made available through the network. You purchased it on the network. Sony is actually reserving a broader right to say, look, we can turn the PlayStation Network off at any time. And if you spent money with us and we turn it off, sorry about that. Try to uh, try to get us on the bottom line in some other capacity because we haven't done what we we're supposed to do and we violated your trust. But legally, you can't sue us for it because we can turn it off at any time. And you agreed to these terms. Now, in various jurisdictions, you're going to have public policy issues with burying some of this stuff deep in the terms and conditions and terms of service. But... For the most part, default rule is it will be held as valid. 
sliding down a little further. You have to do nice things or else they can take your stuff away. We're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Everybody read this far when they started their PlayStations, right? Yeah. All intellectual property rights subsisting in PSN content, remember, including those movies and television shows, <clears throat> including all software, data, services, and other content subsisting in or used in connection with PSN, the online ID and access to content and hardware used in connection with PSN belonging to Sony Interactive Entertainment, its affiliates, and its licensors. Use of the terms own, ownership, purchase, sale, sold, sell, rent, or buy in this agreement or in connection with PSN content does not mean or imply any transfer of ownership of any content, data, or software, or any intellectual property rights from Sony Interactive Entertainment, its affiliates, i.e. Discovery, or its licensors to any user or third party. I'm sorry, licensors is Discovery, affiliates is other Sony subsidiaries. Except as stated in this agreement, all content provided through PSN is licensed on a non-exclusive and revocable basis to you for your personal, private, non-transferable, non-commercial, limited use on a limited number of PlayStation devices or other devices in the country in which your account is registered. So at least I have to give credit to Sony for being as express as I have seen on this, right? When you go to the PlayStation Network store and you go to get a, a season of Mythbusters or a video game, it's going to say buy or purchase on that button. And this says, hey, look, every time we say that, we don't mean it. Now, is that fair for the average consumer? No, but at least it's written out in black and white in this provision. And I do think that the buy button, the purchase concept, is one that is going to run afoul of kind of common law fraud complaints from consumers in some jurisdictions. So Sony's not the only one that could have this happen to them. It could be Xbox. It could be the eShop. It could be Voodoo. It could be anywhere else that you see a buy button. But I do think at some point in the near future, consumers in some kind of class action are going to have some success saying you either need to say buy a license or you need to have this kind of language up top right next to the button. And since that isn't in fact the case here, I do think there is a reasonable argument that someone could make that says, look, I thought buy was buy, right? IGN includes that Redditor that says, I thought I purchased it. What do you mean you can take it away? As for whether they can actually sell it, the answer is no, right? Because Sony doesn't have the right to Mythbusters. They're an intermediary. They can only actually convey under the Copyright Act what has transferred to them. And that is some kind of license from Discovery that is terminating at the end of the year. Now, as for that archival question, I do think there's an interesting bit of language here in 10.9. Except for the rights expressly granted herein, Sony Interactive Entertainment, its affiliates, and its licensors reserve all rights, interests, and remedies in connection with all of this stuff. Upon termination of this agreement, your account, or a license to any content, you will immediately cease use of the content and delete or destroy any copies. So what Sony is saying when they announce that they're getting rid of all the discovery stuff is that their license is ending, which means your license is ending. And in fact, under the terms you agreed to with Sony, even if you could archive with a phone and a television or a CD drive or, or Blu-ray or whatever else you've got, you've agreed to delete or destroy any of those copies once that license has ended. Now, is Sony going to come after you? Are they going to figure out that you have a CD full of Mythbusters episodes? Probably not. But you have agreed by contract to get rid of those, even if you feel wronged by this. And I'm not telling anybody to not feel wronged by all of this. Then we get to the video content section itself. 
Video content includes any recordings or live streams of sports, music concerts, and other entertainment events, television shows, and movies made available for rental, purchase, or free viewing through PlayStation Network. And you see the word purchase there, but remember, from a legal perspective, we've got that language above that says purchase never means purchase. We're not ever conveying the underlying copyright because we don't have it to convey, right? Sony can't set up Mythbusters episodes in a theater and charge tickets because they weren't given that right. They were only given the right to distribute it through their store. They can't give you the right to the actual underlying copyrighted materials any better. That's just the way that intellectual property contracts work. So can Sony enter into a better contract at the start? Can they negotiate better when the term is up? Yes, absolutely. Hold their feet to the fire for that. But they can't convey what they don't have the rights to themselves. Video content is made available to account holders in select territories for your personal, private, non-commercial viewing in your authorized territory using a limited number of PlayStation devices or other devices, which are called authorized devices, during an authorized viewing period, the term. Availability of video content is subject to change at any time without notice to you. So from Sony's perspective, they've got a contract right that says we can get rid of it immediately. We can snap our fingers and take it away from you. And what we've actually done here is given you a couple months notice. So we're doing better than our contract actually obligates us to do. So again, from a contract lawyer's perspective, Sony probably has the rights to do these things overall, even if they might lose on reasonable person understanding or equitable principles. From a pure black letter contract law, Sony seems to be doing okay. Video content may be made available to you as a live or near, near live stream, as a licensed copy for rental for a limited duration, licensed rental content, that's the rent button, a licensed copy for an indefinite duration, other licensed content, this is your buy or purchase button, or as a licensed stream supported by advertising or promotional materials that may be made for a limited duration. And if we go to look at that other licensed content, the stuff that you can buy, Sony makes an interesting acknowledgement. Other licensed content may be downloaded or streamed to authorized devices. Look at that word downloaded, right? We saw in the IGN article that there's no easy technological way to bring something that you got from the PlayStation store via video onto your PlayStation. And so even though this says downloaded, Sony hasn't actually precipitated that ability through their own hardware, even though they will now say after ordering other licensed content, which is again, those movies and TV shows we're talking about, we encourage you to immediately download the content where supported on all authorized devices on which you may want to later view it. Now, why are they doing that? They don't actually say why, but the notion is because we might lose the right to distribute it. We might lose the right to reproduce it later. In some other cases, other licensed content may not be available for subsequent copying or downloading to additional authorized devices. Access to other licensed content that has been purchased may also be subject to compatibility, continued availability to the other licensed content from our third-party licensors, discovery making sure that we get the license rights to distribute it, and other applicable restrictions. Delivery of and your access to video content are dependent on variables not under our control, including the speed and availability of your broadband or network connection, compatibility between the format of the video content and the authorized device you use to access it, availability of video content from our third-party licensors, and any applicable restrictions that may be imposed on the video content from our third-party licensors. Now, again, if I'm sitting across the table from them, if I'm in a corporate contract negotiation, I look at availability of video content from our third-party licensors as not outside your control, right? That's not a force majeure. It's not an act of God type event. You're the ones that have the best chance of negotiating a license with Discovery and anybody else that's providing content to your store. I want you to be liable for failing to do that. I want you to have the risk of that concern. And I would say this is not an act of God. I would ask to have this kind of language taken out. But 
This language exists in the contract, contact, contract, excuse me, which indicates that if Sony can't otherwise negotiate a license with Discovery because they're asking too much or because Sony just doesn't feel like it anymore, then that's an act outside their control and you will not receive a refund or credit for any downloaded or streamed content that you are not able to view or have difficulty viewing due to these uncontrollable variables, unless the content is faulty or unless the law requires otherwise. Now, certainly I think not having access at all could constitute a certain amount of fault, but the way this sentence is structured, it is indicative of something that is not faulty if it's otherwise removed for these uncontrollable variables. And so I do think the Sony lawyers have done what they need to do to protect themselves in their own terms and conditions. An argument from a class action or otherwise would have to come and argue that this is essentially void for public policy, that it's so unexpected and that a reasonable person wouldn't understand that this is the way that it's structured, that they have been unduly and unjustly harmed. And that's always gonna be a harder case than if the words worked better for you as a consumer. Now, going on a little bit further, you and the Sony entities agree that any claim filed by you or by a Sony entity in small claims court are not subject to these arbitration terms. So we've talked in the past about the, the Patreon arbitration fight, and we've seen online some arguments be made against Steam, where you get a lot of small claims into arbitration and, and rack up those arbitration costs, even if you're not going to win. Uh, and that's been used by certain plaintiffs to argue against some of these tech companies. Here, Sony's lawyers appear to have a wise exclusion that says, hey, if you're small enough, you don't go into this arbitration system. We're just going to go through the cheap court system. And so I don't think that that's available, but otherwise you have to arbitrate your claims against Sony. So overall, Sony's lawyers did what they're supposed to do, which isn't any kind of balm for consumers, but it does mean from a commercial lawyer's perspective that Sony can do this kind of thing. In fact, they have done this kind of thing when people didn't care. And so you should be cognizant of that in judging what amount of money you're willing to spend on passive media content through the PlayStation Store as opposed to Vudu or Amazon or iTunes or Xbox or wherever else you might get media content, that you aren't seeing these same kind of announcements from other parties. So yes, Sony should be incentivized to make sure that this doesn't happen both in the future on renewals and when they're entering into initial contracts with some of these content providers. That's what I would see have happen, but it's little comfort for those of you that have Mythbusters episodes that you're going to lose the rights to. Now, as part of that, I do want to talk about this notion of a difference between digital and physical. And one of the things that we get into is this notion of what is it to have a disc, right? What is it to have a record or a disc or a book? And what does it mean under the Copyright Act? So I want to bring up a couple of things here. First, the notion of the first sales doctrine, right? So as you might know, if you go into a Barnes and Noble or another favorite bookstore and you buy a book, you can lend that to a friend, no problem. And you can even sell that to a friend, no problem. And why is that when I'm, we, we're just talking about the exclusive right to distribute? Well, that's because of this provision in the Copyright Act, notwithstanding 106.3, which if you recall is the right to distribute, the owner of a particular copy or phono record, i.e. record or CD, lawfully made under this title, or any person authorized by such owner is entitled without the authority of the original copyright owner to sell or otherwise dispose of the possession of that copy or phono record. Said another way, once you sell a book, the owner of that paper and binding and actual physical material that comprises that book 
can pass it on regardless of the fact that it embodies your copyrighted material, the story that you wrote. And the same goes for music. But that doesn't apply in the digital world because it's not a particular copy under this title. And there's other language here that gets a little bit more convoluted and confusing, and we're not going to go into in any great detail regarding computer programs specifically. Notwithstanding the provisions of subsection A, unless authorized by the owners of copyright in a sound recording or a computer program, neither the owner of a particular phonorecord sound recording nor any person in possession of a particular copy of a computer program may, for the purposes of direct or indirect commercial advantage, dispose of or authorize the disposal of the possession of that phonorecord or computer program by rental, lease, or lending. So you can't make commercial lending to the public of your music or computer programs, right? And you might say, okay, well, Rick, I'm not sure how that works for video games exactly, but I can understand why if you buy a CD, you're not allowed to just lease it to a nightclub or a concert venue or something along those lines. And a lot of what we'll see here really does come through the, the music side of things, right? You can almost see the lobbying efforts of some of these bits of language. Note that the subsection does not apply to a computer program which is embodied in a machine or product and which cannot be copied during the ordinary operation or use of the machine or product, right? So like if you buy an MRI machine that has operating software in it and isn't otherwise able to get that operating software out by use of the machine, then you can sell that machine on. It doesn't infringe on the original software. And the same goes really for a PlayStation 4 operating system or PlayStation 5. A computer program embodied in or used in conjunction with a limited purpose computer that is designed for playing video games and maybe designed for other purposes also doesn't have this applied to it. So again, you can pass on those consoles, even though this is pretty tortured legislative writing, right? A computer program embodied or in or used in conjunction with a limited purpose computer, that's a video game console to you and me, designed for playing video games, but and maybe designed for other purposes. Okay, so what does limited purpose mean in this particular context? It's not the tightest bit of code, as my game developer friends might say, but it is the way the law is written. And so you have all these various exceptions and exceptions to the exceptions to this first sale notion, but you still have at its base a particular copy issue. And it's one that folks that have advocated for digital transfers and first sale to apply in the United States have lost on. Now we see other jurisdictions like France and various aspects of the European Union looking at whether there's some kind of first sale doctrine that should apply to digital goods, but it hasn't been adopted certainly globally yet and not in the jurisdictions where you are most likely to care about it if you're watching virtual legality. And on that note, let's look at a case, right? Everybody loves cases as much as they love statutes, right? So this is the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. This is Capital Records versus Redigi Inc. And if you didn't know about this, this was a platform that essentially tried to abide by the copyright rules and avoid some of the pitfalls that other folks have gotten into with copying of music that nonetheless lost their case because they were viewed to have been reproducing music files when they weren't allowed to because the Copyright Act says that the copyright owner is the exclusive, uh, the exclusive holder of the right to copy. That's what copyright means, right? So let's take a look at a little bit of this. Defendant Redigi Inc. and its founders appeal from the judgment of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York in favor of Capital Records, Capital Christian Music Group, and Virgin Records IR Holdings, finding copyright infringement. Defendants had created an internet platform designed to enable the lawful resale under the first sale doctrine of lawfully purchased digital music files and had hosted resales of such files on the platform. The district court concluded that notwithstanding the first sale doctrine, 
codified in 17 USC 109A, which we looked at, ReDigi's internet system version 1.0 infringed the plaintiff's copyrights by enabling the resale of such digital files containing sound recordings of plaintiff's copyrighted music. We agree with the district court that ReDigi infringed the plaintiff's exclusive rights under 106.1 to reproduce their copyrighted works. We make no decision whether ReDigi also infringed the plaintiff's exclusive rights under 106.3 to distribute their works because a court is only supposed to decide things as narrowly as is necessary to come to an opinion. They decide against them on one. They don't need to look at three. Plaintiffs are record companies, which own copyrights or licenses in sound recordings of musical performances. Plaintiffs distribute those sound recordings in numerous forms, of which the most familiar 20 years ago was the compact disc. Today, plaintiffs also distribute their music in the form of digital files, which are sold to the public by authorized agent services, such as Apple iTunes, under license from plaintiffs. Purchasers from the Apple iTunes online store download the files onto their personal computers or other devices. I think we're all okay with this description so far. ReDigi was founded by defendants Austin Meyer and Rudolph in 2009, Austin Mocker, with the goal of creating enabling technology and providing a marketplace for the lawful resale of lawfully purchased digital music files. And if you're in the video game side of things, you might note this sounds a little bit like what the Xbox One was originally slated to try to do before there was an overall kind of uprising against it by video gamers in general. Austin Mocker served as ReDigi's chief executive officer, and Rudolph, who spent 12 years as a principal research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, served as ReDigi's chief techn technical officer. During the period addressed by the operative complaint, ReDigi, through its system version 1.0, hosted resales of digital music files containing the plaintiff's music by persons who had lawfully purchased the files from iTunes. So a consumer goes and buys something from iTunes and they want to resell it. They want a market for this good, this digital good that they have. And ReDigi was trying to make that happen, even though the Copyright Act really doesn't think about digital goods at all. Considering the evidence in the light most favorable to ReDigi, ReDigi's system version 1.0 operates as follows. One, the music manager, a person who owns a digital music file lawfully purchased from iTunes and intends to employ ReDigi's system to resell it, must first download and install onto her computer ReDigi's music manager software program. Once music manager has been installed, it analyzes the digital file intended for resale, verifies that the file was originally lawfully purchased from iTunes, and scans it for indications of tampering. If the file was lawfully purchased, Music Manager deems it an eligible file that may be resold. Then two, data migration. The ReDigi user must then cause the file to be transferred to ReDigi's remote server known as the Cloud Locker. To effectuate this transfer, ReDigi developed a new method that functions differently from the conventional file transfer. The conventional process is to reproduce the digital file at the receiving destination so that upon completion of the transfer, the file exists simultaneously on both the receiving device and on the device from which it was transferred. If connectivity is disrupted during such a standard transfer, the process can be repeated because the file remains intact on the sender's device. Yes. When you copy a file, and you know this from just your desktop, ordinarily you create a second version at the new place that you've sent it to, and you would have to go back and delete the original. But obviously when we talk about copyright, we're concerned if we're running a company like ReDigi that that looks a lot like reproducing the file in issue. And we've seen companies that are doing that in the digital space lose. So with an MIT technological officer and a CEO that's actually trying to abide by the law by all looks of things, what they decide to do is not copy the whole file and instead kind of disintegrate it into parts. Under ReDigi's method, which is called data migration, I love it when they put in quotes things that are fairly standard technological terms, ReDigi's software begins by breaking the digital music file into small blocks of data of roughly 4,000 bytes in length. Once the file has been broken into blocks of data, 
called packets. Redigi's system creates a transitory copy of each packet in the initial purchaser's computer buffer. Upon copying or reading a packet into the initial purchaser's computer buffer, Redigi software sends a command to delete that packet of the digital file from permanent storage on the initial purchaser's device. Redigi software then sends the packet to the Redigi software to be copied into the buffer and deleted from the user's device. During the data migration process, the digital file cannot be accessed, played, or perceived. If connectivity is disrupted during the data migration process, the remnants of the digital file on the user's device are unusual, and the transfer cannot be reinitiated. I have to be honest, when I was reading this case for the first time, I knew how it ended up. I know what the status of the law is right now. I was looking at this going, well, that's about as close to perfect in terms of trying to abide by the law as I can imagine one of these companies doing. And yet, once all of the packets of the source file have been transferred to Redigi server, the eligible file has been entirely removed from the user's device. The packets are then reassembled into a complete accessible and playable file on Redigi server. So what's the issue here? Redigi describes its primary technological innovation using the metaphor of a train, leaving from one station and arriving at its destination. Under either the typical method or Redigi's method, packets are sent sequentially such that conceptually each packet is a car moving from the source to the destination device. Once all the packets arrive at the destination device, they are reassembled into a usable file. And if you've ever read tech court cases, this is how they all look. They all sound like it's described by a preschool teacher trying to explain how technology works. And that's just how the law functions. That's how court cases function in this venue. I apologize for that. That's just how it is. So we're talking about train cars moving into stations. Once all the packets arrive at the destination device, they are re reassembled into that usable file. At that moment, in a typical transfer, the entire digital file in usable form exists on both devices. Redigi's system differs in that it effectuates a deletion of each packet from the user's device immediately after the transitory copy of that packet arrives in the computer's buffer, before the packet is forwarded to Redigi's server. In other words, as each packet leaves the station, Redigi deletes it from the original purchaser's device such it no longer exists. As a result, the entire file never exists in two places at once. After the file has reached Redigi's server, but before it has been resold, the user may continue to listen to it by streaming audio from the user's cloud locker on Redigi's server. If the user later redownloads the file from her cloud locker to her computer, Redigi will delete the file from its own server. And then resale happens. Once an eligible file has migrated to Redigi's server, it can be resold by the user utilizing Redigi's market function. If it is resold, Redigi gives the new purchaser exclusive access to the file. Redigi will, at the new purchaser's option, either download the file to the new purchaser's computer or other device, or will retain the file in the new purchaser's cloud locker on Redigi's server, from which the new purchaser can stream the music. Now, I imagine all of this is in violation of the terms of service from the iTunes side of things, because the iTunes terms of service, while not using the exact same language, is going to have a lot of the same protections we saw in the PlayStation Network terms of service. But note that this is not a lawsuit of iTunes against Redigi. This is a lawsuit of the content providers, the Discovery Channel in our particular current day situation, but in this case, things like Virgin Records. And so... They have to go and make the claim that this is a violation of their intellectual property rights and their exclusive right to make copies. Duplicates. Redigi purports to guard against the user's retention of duplicates of her digital music files after she sells the files through Redigi. To that end, Music Manager continuously monitors the user's computer hard drive and connected devices to detect duplicates. When a user attempts to upload an eligible file to Redigi's server, Redigi prompts her to delete any pre-existing duplicates that Music Manager has detected. If Redigi detects that the user has not deleted the duplicates, Redigi blocks the upload of the eligible file. After an upload is complete, Music Manager continues to search the user's connected devices for duplicates. 
If it detects a duplicate of a previously uploaded eligible file, Redigi will prompt the user to authorize Redigi to delete the DAT duplicate from her personal device. And if authorization is not granted, it will suspend her account. Plaintiffs point out, again, the, the record makers, and Redigi does not dispute, that these precautions do not prevent the retention of duplicates after resale through Redigi. Suspension of the original purchaser's Redigi account does not negate the fact that the original purchaser has both sold and retained the digital music file after she sold it. So long as the user retains previously made duplicates on devices not linked to the computer that hosts Music Manager, Music Manager will not detect them. This means that a user could, prior to resale through Redigi, store a duplicate on a compact disc, thumb drive, or third-party cloud service unconnected to the computer that hosts Music Manager, and access that duplicate post-resale. So what they're really worried about here is a nefarious consumer can use this Redigi platform to get around copyright. But where the, the tie isn't as close as I would like to see from a legal perspective, it doesn't appear that Redigi itself is facilitating that. You're actually talking about infringers at the bottom level, and they kind of bootstrap that to a notion that Redigi is helping facilitate these bad acts. The first sale doctrine. The primary issue on appeal is whether Redigi system version 1.0 lawfully enables resales of its users' digital files. Sections 106.1 and 3 of the Copyright Act respectively grant the owner of the copyright the exclusive right to control the reproduction and distribution of the copyrighted work. Under the first sale doctrine, codified in 109A, the rights holder's control over the distribution of any particular copy or phono record that was lawfully made effectively terminates when that copy or phono record is distributed to its first recipient. Under this provision, it is established that the lawful copy of a book is free to sell when Um, so I've still got, um, add to stage powers, so I'll just come on while, um, while there appear to be some technical difficulties, how are people doing? <laughs> we'll just, uh, I'll try to hold down the fort a little bit while, uh, we've got technical difficulties. Um, I think this is a, a bit of a, uh, a fascinating case. Um, we'll just, uh, um, Later on, I'm going to be on to uh, talk with Rick a little bit about uh, sort of my perspectives on all of this, but uh, I don't want to spoil the show there. But um, this is not sort of new. There's a lot of these kinds of um, kinds of issues that go on. So this is um, now Rick said, you know, people like um, 
you know, Mythbusters more than they liked some of the other content. And I don't know that that's, um, I mean, different instances kind of catch the public's eye to different degrees. And part of that can just be, um, could just be like somebody influential on Twitter who decides to, uh, you know, decides to call it out or something like that. So I'm not sure that this one is like people liking Mythbusters. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Mythbusters is like, people are way keen on that. But I mean, it can just be a matter of what catches the public's interest in, uh, you know, in that sense. Um, and I see people saying Mythbusters is part of the culture. Um, and, you know, Hunger Games is much smaller. Fair enough. Um, somebody asked me, how am I feeling today? Um, my throat's a bit rough. Um, I was streaming for four hours last night and, um, you know, it, uh, it gets to be, um, it gets to be a little rough when you're uh, recovering. Um, I hope Rick's doing okay. He seems to be having some technical difficulties there, but, uh, as I said, we'll hold down the fort here while we can. Um, so, uh, now these rulings, you know, are these issues don't just apply to like Mythbusters as, uh, as Rick was pointing out, um, ho like, uh, steam has all sorts of similar issues. Um, Epic, all of these things. And really we live in a world where all of the digital content we consume, um, is potentially able to, to vanish on us. Um, and that can include things that you, and I might be spoiling for Rick here a little bit, but that can include things that you uh, might might have a physical copy of, because a lot of the physical copy things actually have uh, little digital keys in them that allow you to decrypt the content. That content is encrypted, and then in order to uh, to decrypt it, um, is you know requires that those keys be valid, and so. Uh, for a lot of the stuff where you think you've got a physical copy, it's actually the case that um, it's actually the case that these things could be taken away from you just by virtue of somebody going and flipping a switch and saying delist this. Um, Kelly C makes a great point about you can't mess with a physical book. Yeah, uh, so there's different degrees of physical ownership, and Rick was pointing out, and you know. I was finding it quite fascinating that there's a real difference between I own this physical book uh, versus I own um, a digital copy of something, especially something like, um, you know, a game or the like. So, um, and we've got Papa Rick who makes uh, an excellent point here about has Steam ever taken away a game? They're delisted games, but those can still be re-downloaded. I don't know if they've ever taken away a game and steam does typically say that if they're removing a game that it'll be, um, you know, delisted. So you can't buy it anymore. I've got some delisted games, uh, but that, um, that you still keep the copy you have. And if you uninstall that, that you still have access to, uh, to reinstall that game. Whereas somebody else, um, you know, does not. Um, so, um, it's, um, uh, it is a bit of a different thing. And I mean, Rick makes this point about, um, you know, looking at different, uh, 
you know, different companies and how they handle these issues. But, um, you know, we get, um, we get issues with that in terms of all of this. I've got some different solutions than, um, than I think Rick does. We'll talk about that, um, you know, when we get there, but, um, yeah, it's, um, this is, this is going to be a bigger and bigger deal, especially because nowadays, um, software and, um, digital things and so forth might not just be Mythbusters. It might not just be, um, it might not just be, um, you know, uh, you know, a copy of RimWorld or whatever else. It could be all sorts of things. Um, it could be a situation where, um, you know, that this is the software that's necessary to uh, to run your car uh, or to run your tractor. Like if we look at John Deere and how they deal with, uh, you know, some of the software stuff. Um, so there's all sorts of situations where, um, uh, this software could be, could be even more important. Um, what, what do you think about like, if your hospital, uh, needs software to operate the MRI machines and that, you know, and, and they get sort of, uh, a rug pull on this. Uh, what if your Tesla needs, um, uh, needs a, a thing to, you know, needs software in order to keep the auto driving on or the heated seats on, um, all of these things, right? What, what do you do if these are, um, you know, and so I think we're going to have to grapple with this because we're going to end up with situations where, for instance, somebody might have purchased a very expensive car, you know, it might be, um, you know, because if you're buying a car, it could easily be $100,000, right? And then if that car is no longer operable simply because of of all of this, um, then, you know, will people put up with that? This might be the sort of um, the impetus of, um, of some of this change that I'd like to see. And um, I think we'll uh, we'll wait until Rick gets back in order to have the uh, the proper debate over that. But I mean, I think that there's um, some real possible concerns there. So, uh, and I see Papa Rick says, "Oh my God, that future is going to be scary, where you can't drive because of digital reasons." Um, all sorts of manufacturers of physical goods would love to switch you over to a system where, because right now, like you know, there's all sorts of things where I buy it and then it's just mine, right? Like this computer, I bought this computer. It's my computer. Um, I can do anything what I, that I want with it. I can, you know, if I wanted, I can take it out back into the, um, you know, into the back alley and I can destroy it. So long as I, you know, follow rules about like disposal of, uh, of, you know, trash and so forth. But, um, um, but these companies would very much like to, um, they would very much like to make more money. And one of the ways that they can make more money is by switching people from, uh, 
a system where you pay once for something to a system where you've got uh, subscription payments. And so you're going to see more efforts to try to push things for, um, you know, you you bought your car, you paid full price for your car, and then you have to, um, you know, you also have to go and, uh, and pay us, you know, a subscription in order for all of your features to continue running. I see people saying that I am out of sync. I am sorry. I don't know why I'm out of sync, but um, apparently I am. Um, StreamYard is maybe doing some things. I would hit refresh to fix it or try to fix it, but um, that's not going to help. Um, like, because right now I'm uh, holding down the fort. I hope Rick's doing all right. Um, it sounds like there's some technical troubles there, but... Um, yeah, and I see people saying Tesla does that already. Um, that uh, I think that what we're looking at is kind of um, an unpleasant future in some ways because um, you know how do you um, how do you deal with this kind of thing? How do you deal with situations where um, we don't actually, you know, where our feelings of ownership are? largely wrong <laughs> you know we're living in a setting where you know we think we own something and in fact that um that we don't so um i see uh mrs hoaglog said that they you know are rebooting some forced updates so hopefully everything is um um uh, hopefully everything there is getting set up but um yeah it's um it i think these are important issues i think that they need to be discussed in more detail um and people have noted the puppers seem to be getting up um i think the puppers want their breakfast um <laughs> that also means my wife is almost certainly getting up so uh there may be some background noises miss hogloss is still working no worry no worries we're just um um, hopefully, uh, Mrs. Hoaglaw doesn't mind me uh, hijacking and taking over. Um, I think Rick might be like, you know, we'll have to have a talk, Runkle. <laughs> you know, here's... Oh, I'm guessing uh, Mrs. Runkle must have stepped out. The pups are, uh, you know, are <laughs> they got some opinions. Um, one second. One second here. I just had to ask the puppies nicely if they could maybe uh, quiet it down, and uh, they have uh, they have uh, cooperated. So uh, I'm guessing Mrs. Runkle probably stepped out and is off to work, which means that the puppies miss her. And uh, I mean, I feel you, pups. I I agree, but uh, so yeah, the pups are off. Uh, you know they they'll uh, have some complaints because um what is it uh so uh one of the things that happens in the morning is that uh, the puppies uh so once once mrs runkle leaves the puppies want to go out into the backyard and they want to check to make sure she's not just hiding there they want to go and 
and have a look. Um, they're they're also just not understanding that um, you know that uh, you know the they don't sort of view me as a as an acceptable substitute. I'm uh, I'm a very poor uh, knockoff. So that is what it is. And um, yeah, for the folks just tuning in now, I am sorry. Uh, due to copyright issues, you have lost access to Rick Hogue. And so now you've got um, a, uh, a poor substitute in the form of me holding down the fort here. I'm kidding about the copyright issues. It sounds like they've got some technical issues, but uh, I just had to get that little, uh, little dig in there. Because, <laughs> hey, well, I can. Because um, <laughs> Rick's uh, Rick's not around. Uh, I'm as I said. I'm sure he'll be back. You'll be back to your regular uh, virtual legality content. But um, yeah, no. I mean, uh, there's going to be other. Um, this won't be the, the the beginning or the end of this. Um, places where you'll see similar issues um, will be things like. Um, uh, you know, in-game purchasables and stuff like that. So let's say you've purchased your, um, let's say you've bought, you know, some sort of knife skin or um, something else, right? Um, some sort of skin, some sort of whatever. And then they decide to shut the game down. What is your entitlement to that? Well, um, nothing. Uh, let's say you've bought some sort of, um, you know, uh, knife skin and they decide to just take it away. So the game is, you know, you're still able to play the game, but they've said, you know what, you can no longer, um, you know, you no longer have this, you know, knife skin, you no longer have this, whatever else. Um, how do you feel about that? Um, and Cul uh, culparistic uh, notes. Uh, I'll respond to this one while it's here uh, saying, let me see if I have the power to pull this up. I do. I do have pull up things powers. I have way too much power here. That's that's ridiculous. Um, I, I feel like Rick's going to take all these powers away later. But uh, for all the crap we rightfully give NFTs, that prevents a solution to own or presents a solution to own digital purpose purchases, even when companies would like us not to. Fun thing, no, they don't, because um, your NFT only connects to a link, and so even the NFT games that you see uh, put in clauses that say um, that they that they're not required to keep that going. So um, an NFT is basically you have bought a link, but that's it. Um, so whether or not that link has any meaning is dependent on, you know, whoever's running the game or whoever's running the server, because that NFT doesn't contain, um, all of the information that you might need. So let's say, um, you know, let's say some new game comes out and, you know, um, whatever it's, you know, whatever it's called, right? Um, and they decide to do an NFT based system. They decide that it's all NFTs. And so my character in that game, um, owns a Jeep or something. And I have an NFT that says I own the Jeep. Well, 
they can change that to saying that NFT no longer represents a Jeep. It now represents a knife. And there's nothing I can do about that uh, because they'll put in their terms of service that that's okay. Um, so, you know, if they lose the ability to, um, you know, let's say they lose the trademark on, you know, or they lose the right to use the Jeep trademark, then um, I'm just SOL. And there's absolutely nothing like NFTs don't fix this problem. Anytime you think that um, NFTs are the solution and I'm getting fuzzy, I got to fix my autocorrect here or my uh, my focus. I don't know why this camera like has autofocus and it's awful. It just kind of wanders and focuses on nothing. There we go. That should fix it. Um, so any problem that you think an NFT might solve, um, it doesn't typically. Oh, and I'm going to hand things back. I have taken things over, but um, uh, Rick, are you ready to go? I mean, as ready as I'll ever be in. So, folks, if you can believe it, this is a different computer from last week doing different things. Um, so hopefully there wasn't any of the same kind of robot voice or disconnects that you heard last week when we were trying to work through memory issues. But one thing I can't do right now is get my monitor to work. Oh, so okay. I've, I've got my laptop open and you'll see me peering off to the side, but it's too far for me to mostly read. So I'm going to do my best here. And because the computer shut down and froze and everything else, I've lost my tabs. So suffice it to say, one, thank you so much to Ian Runkle, who I wanted to introduce much <laughs> differently than I did today, uh, for both coming on and taking over the stream. I really appreciate it, Ian. I am sorry that that happened and that you were oh. thrust into the camera public without any kind of say-so. No worries. Um you know, sorry about all the uh, hardcore pornography that we were playing while you were uh, oh, no. while you were away. <laughs> it's funny. I asked co-counsel what was happening, and she said, "Well, Ian took over." And I was like, "Oh, he was he was waiting patiently doing his work while I went through a hundred legal documents, and then he just had to come in and talk." So one of the reasons I wanted to have Ian on today, folks, is and this is gone. Unfortunately, I had it ready to listen a couple nights ago, where. I essentially said to a person that was advocating for piracy in response to these events that piracy is the wrong answer and that we want to keep working through normally legal means to affect change. And Ian came on and said that won't work uh, <laughs> and that this is why piracy develops. Right? I don't want to mischaracterize you, Ian, but it was basically when you have this kind of relationship with your consumers, this is why consumers do the things they do. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, you you need to understand that this is kind of a force of nature in the sense that um, people are going to find solutions when they feel like they're being ripped off. And there aren't really solutions because when you say, like, go to another co company, they all have clauses like this. There is no company that doesn't. So really, you just kind of hope that a particular company isn't going to take your money and run but they all give themselves the right to. Yeah, and... all, the, all the language. And that was definitely one of the parts that I was going to say towards the end of the video was that one of the things I need to mention is that the Sony terms of service, those are going to look similar across all these storefronts, but there is a trust factor when you're talking about these things, right? I said, I'm a digital buyer. And one of those is trying to figure out 
who is going to be the most long-lived, who is going to be the most trustworthy with your money, and discounting, if appropriate, for those that are not, right? Like, if, if Sony offers all the Mythbusters, not now, after they've announced this, but six months ago, for $2 a season, then you say, okay, I, I, I get what I paid for, and something was going on there with the licenses, and you say, but it was worth the discounted price. But knowing that it's not an ownership relationship, knowing that you're not getting the same thing as you get if you go to find a DVD somewhere of those same seasons is important to understanding what the value is to you. Um, and so I do want to articulate that you can have those interactions with companies. You can get burned by them. Remember those, write them down, keep track of who's not trustworthy in this space. And Ian doesn't like that for moving the companies. I am a commercial transactions lawyer, right? So I represent companies. I negotiate against companies. I have seen that work in the past. I think we've even seen it work in video games with respect to loot boxes and the way electronic arts does business, but it is a slower, more ephemeral process than self-help. And so I, I tend to think of Ian and I's argument on Twitter the other night as essentially a kind of lawful good versus chaotic good kind of notion. And I, I'll always pretty much advocate the coloring within the lines and trying to change from within which some of you may agree with, some of you may not. That's okay. You don't have to agree with me on this. And some of you may agree with Ian and some of you may not. That's totally okay too. That's that's the best part of talking about these issues and being lawyers and having these kinds of discussions. I had people come in to my DMs and say, you know, you got to show that Ian guy something. I'm like, dude, this is how <laughs> lawyers talk. I have said in the past that you put a couple lawyers in a room, you're going to get three opinions, if not five. And if you can well, articulate these things, that's what reasonable minds differing means, right? Ian was being reasonable. He just had a different kind of value set that he saw to achieving the same ends that I want, which is better, more protective rights in the digital world. And I would absolutely advocate for those copyright law changes that I think Ian would. And certainly I said in this video that the way the buy button works, I think is bordering on common law fraud. Uh, and even if I can explain it to you in this space about what you're buying, you're buying a license and that is a legally accurate way of characterizing that it's not what most people think they're buying and i think that that is something that needs to be corrected in the law and i think ultimately the you know the correction should be coming from to bring consumers expectations and the law closer into line um so when they say in that terms of service if the law conflicts then the law takes press you know you may not be able to waive certain rights i'm like that's that's ripe for expansion we can expand this in ways where Sony is SOL on this move. But the other thing is uh, things like fair use or the Canadian concept of fair dealing. I think there's a real place to say, listen, you as an authorized license holder, sell, like purport to sell something, you, you put it with a buy link. Every person who bought that on that basis now has a fair use right to that content. And if they get it from, you know, whatever pirate site or whatever, that's fine. They have a fair use right to that. You sold it to them. And if you, Sony, and you, Discovery, have an issue with that, like, Sony, you didn't have the right to give people that forever, Discovery should sue Sony. And then it's the consumer who's okay, and Discovery and Sony have to sort this out. And suddenly we end up in a world where the consumer isn't always the one taking the loss. So that's true. and that we also might wind up in a world where content creators aren't willing to license their goods in Canada. That's fair. Um, 
I mean, if it happens in the States, I don't think you're going to see content creators going, yeah, we're not going to license in the States. No, um, I agree with that. And I think the response, if you get content creators saying we're not willing to license in Canada at all, uh, might be to say, okay, um, we're going to start pulling out of some copyright agreements, uh, some, some copyright trade agreements, and just really revisit whether copyright makes sense um, in the digital age. Because I don't know that the original conception of it does make sense you know as much i think it does need some major um some thinking about how we whether we should take this apart at kind of some fundamental levels like you know does life plus 70 years or make sense oh, no, certainly the length of copyright is is fully up for grabs i agree with that i could not agree more with that ian and i i think that the buy buttons are a problem and i think that honestly first sale doctrine is an idea that makes sense in a world of a hundred years ago and probably needs a legal upgrade for digital goods because that's where the goods live right now. Yeah. And I mean, all of these things, we should probably move some of the, the problem is, is that for any of these things, um, the consumer at home who's listening to music or watching Mythbusters doesn't have a lobbyist. And you know, they're not taking your local congressman out to like, hey, let's have a chat at this restaurant that, you know, has a reservation list that is, you know, 12 months long and where the price of a steak um, is the price of, you know, my mortgage bill. Um, and if you don't think that influences your local Congress critter, you're wrong. Like lobbyists are effective. That's why they get paid. So um, the fact that you know, there's some real power imbalance as to who gets to make these rules. So, oh, I think you could see it pretty clearly in the in that second subsection of the first sale law, which is you can see yeah. the music companies operate, you can see the video game companies operate in that language because it doesn't make any sense read together. It's just a sequence of things that they wanted. Well, um, here in Canada, we actually had a um, so when they were reforming copyright, they were doing like a town hall thing. And yeah. it was in Ottawa, and there were a, there were a hundred tickets, and they said basically, "Oh, you're everybody who gets manages to get one of these tickets is going to get a chance to speak." So um, I managed to get a ticket, and I was going to go there and you know present basically some uh, we should modernize copyright in favor of consumers, and there were a bunch of other um, consumer groups and so forth that managed to do it. Well, they realized that that room was not all lobbyists and so forth. And so at the last minute when we got in there, they changed the rules. And so now instead of it being every person, you know, we've we've had limited tickets and therefore everybody's going to get a window. It was we're going to give longer time to selected speakers, none of whom yeah. were from, you know, independence or none of whom. It was all lobby groups that got to speak and yep. you know i can see it happening I, I i did a review of the copyright office's discussion of the copyright act i think a couple of years ago where i talked about the fact that they were coming at it from almost the exact opposite direction that you would expect to see with some of the problems we're seeing through the dmca and youtube and things like that and so i think that sucks i will point out ian that when you say no lobbyists and you mentioned consumer groups consumer groups are lobbyists for consumer interests i mean that's what they are it's true, but they don't tend to have like registered lobbyists. A lot of these consumer groups are things like eight guys in a, you know, eight guys no, in a Facebook group kind of thing. 
I'm not, so, and I'm just saying that there are mechanisms and this is just, uh, this is essentially a philosophical disagreement on how to affect change between me and Ian. I think we both agree that there there's changes that are warranted. I make virtual legalities yeah. and talk about these issues so that people understand them better so that they direct their ire more appropriately than just kind of the outrage that we see so often online, just kind of wheeling at anything and everything within its line of sight. So, I mean, it's, it's just a difference in philosophical kind of momentum for the two of us. But I, I think we can both agree that things need to be changed. And if we had gotten to the end of the Redigi case, I apologize, <laughs> folks, for that. The reason that they lose is that the court finds that there's a reproduction element happening, that it affects the ability of a bad actor to have a reproduction happen, and that the first sale doesn't cover digital goods, that it's not a particularized copy. One of the things Redigi tries to argue is that because of the way the packets move, it never gets bigger than the original size of the file, and so there's never a reproduction happening, and it's a particular instance that should fall within first sale. And the court rejects it. Both courts reject it. That's the, the court of appeals we were reading. Um, and I think that's a close question. And I certainly think that the reason I brought that case up was it was a situation where this wasn't just kind of a fly-by-night crazy operator saying the laws don't matter and user license agreements don't count. It wasn't your average Twitter user yelling at you about these things. It was a technological solution with a real business model trying to get around some of the copyright barriers and even that failed so on that i'm kind of on ian's side which is like law needs to change if that kind of thing fails because they're really trying and if you're going to lose well, a lawsuit there i'd rather see it come from uh like the itunes of the world and the platform holders that are having violations happen from their user base than the content creators who aren't otherwise being negatively affected by this. And in fact, you could argue a secondary market helps the value of their products, but they still want to have that control to themselves. I also, um, there's always, one of the things I've said is that if you're in the position where you have to ex explain some technical legal working of your software to a court, you're probably uphill. Um, yep. You could, you could see it in that description, right? Trains and yeah. packets and... Uh, yeah, it's anytime you get into like series of tubes, um, yep. you know, the, the courts often get bogged down in the technical, they get lost. And I mean, part of that is just the age of our courts. Um, and the age judges... of our common law, at least in the United yeah. States. Right. I mean, like the reason they use train stations is not because it's the most obvious. It's because there's a lot of precedent in the courts about trains and train companies. Yeah. And I mean, but also just it's metaphors that they're comfortable with. Um, I've been in cases where we've had to explain to judges like what Facebook is and how Facebook works. And the judge is like, you know, it's like, you know, one of the questions sometimes you have to ask is how, like, where's the court's comfort level on Facebook? And sometimes the answer is like, I've heard of it. <laughs> and, you know, you're like, Facebook's been out for, you know, how many decades i was in college yeah <laughs> the court's like i've heard of it you're like oh so yep. um it's rough um well it uh, is rough out there but i i did want to point it out because we disagreed and that's really what reasonable minds can differ is about folks is that uh ian was fairly animated in that twitter thread <laughs> that i can't show you unfortunately right now and uh, I was defending my ground and 
Ian, still a friend, not an enemy. Can you oh, have disagreements absolutely. without? Can, you can have disagreements without drawing swords. And I always like to articulate that one and where I can. I mean, I've got swords if if desired. But, <laughs> I uh, that <laughs> the uh, this is one of the things that law school teaches. I think is just how to get into arguments where you just um, where at the end of the day you're both like, okay, yep, yeah, we we discussed an issue, and it's not a thing. Like it's not. Um, and I get this all the time. I'll be talking with a lawyer on Facebook or something and people are like, man, you guys really hate each other. And it's like, no, we just had a great time discussing an issue and it was fun. And because most people don't want to disagree on things unless like there's like being willing to disagree indicates there's a conflict. Whereas I'm like, no, being willing to disagree, um, somebody disagreeing with you is doing you a favor. Uh, because oh, yeah, no, I liked it, Ian. I, it's, it's, <laughs> it's all right. Let me. What is my actual position here? What, yeah. what is he getting at, and where do I land on these things? And it, it, it forces you to re-examine. Absolutely, and you have to. Um, you know, sometimes I have questions like, "Hey, um, you know, am I, um, am I right about this?" And the way you can test your own beliefs is like, do they hold up? Because I've had moments where I thought like, oh, yeah, it's definitely like this is the way the world works. And somebody else goes, nah. And by the end of it, I'm like, actually, I think they're right. Yeah. And that's a wonderful thing about the world. So, yeah. <laughs> I get my mind changed all the time, folks. All the time. And, and honestly, I, I love that you're here, community, <laughs> and I can't do it without you, but... Never take my opinion or position as sacrosanct on any of this stuff. Always get multiple perspectives if you can find them and have those conversations because that's part of what makes life worth living is reasonable disagreement. It's awesome. And so on the other hand, on the other hand, my view is always sacrosanct. <laughs> okay. Yes. The uncle of the Bailey, the Bailey is sacrosanct. <laughs> and I do want to grab these super chats. I'm, I'm apologize already for the fact that I'm going to have to like try to read this. Uh, Britt, thank you so if, much for this. If you chat. want, I could read them out. Um, oh, I've yeah. got them in big text. And I can hear you. Uh, Britt Cormier says, Bungie has done that. Whole expansions have been removed from Destiny 2. Expansions True. that were paid for by players are all gone. Yeah, they called it vaulting. And I was very much against it. You could see those videos here on the channel uh, about that not being a great thing. But at least yep. those were only expansions and content within the game and not the whole games themselves. You do occasionally see things like servers come down, which I think are more understandable for people. But actually having a game be removed from your library and no longer downloadable is much more of a rare instance. I think gaming actually handles it better than movies and TV right now. Uh, but you and still have to be wary of where you're purchasing these things because it all goes through a licensing pathway. And knowing that is going to help you be able to value your digital purchases if you want to make any at all. I've also seen games do things like, hey, we lost the rights to our music for this game that's been out for like 10 years and has no money left in it. Yeah, um, We went through and we licensed new music because we couldn't get the old music. And so we put it back in the game. You can still play. Um, games yep. do tend to... Um, games tend to be from gamers who have opinions on this stuff. Yep, and we saw that with Alan Wake, most notably, considering its prominence this year with Alan Wake 2. Alan Wake 1 went away because it used things like Ray Orbison and Poe 
and other musical acts uh, and lost those rights. And Microsoft helped Remedy get them back to get them back on Steam uh, which, a few years back. Which is good because Alan Wake 1 is a great game. Alan Wake 2 is a great game. Very Alan cool. Wake, play it, folks. You heard it from us. <laughs> and I got to go back in time a little bit to either when I was off or before I was off here. So here's another one from Britt. Uh, Thank you so says, much. Uh, I have plenty of issues with digital media. However, I have bigger issues with digital blacklist. If Amazon ever decides to terminate your account for something you did on social media, I would hate it more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, and that's a different topic for a different video. And I've covered that as well on the channel. But there are these things where you've got giant multinational companies that have social media platforms that have had people get shut off from things they've purchased. Most notably, in my opinion, was the original Oculus Quest. Facebook bought Oculus. Facebook had an account that you tied to your Facebook account to use your VR headset, your Oculus. And if you said something they didn't like on Facebook that was against their community guidelines or what have you, you'd, you'd have your Oculus effectively bricked. And I think folks need to be aware of those platforms and those things. Those are also kind of landmines in the terms of service. I talked about it with respect to Microsoft and the way they operate some of their community guidelines and doing something bad on Xbox going the other direction and potentially losing your rights to office, right? If you lose office yeah. in the workspace, you're gonna be in trouble. And if you lose it because you said something mean on Call of Duty, that's a problem. Now, Microsoft does a better job than some of separating out and saying a community guidelines violation should only affect your Xbox account, not your Windows and Microsoft account. But you always worry about these things when a company does those multifaceted functions. And so I think that's entirely reasonable, Britt. Thank you so much for the super chat. And I really appreciate the support from everybody. If I missed anything else, let me know. Cause I think this is the, as early as I can get back in my chat as to when I came back into the studio. So uh, there's a members chat that just uh, came up. I don't think you missed anything, um, but it's hedgehog in space saying it's somewhere in, in software. Uh, thank you so much for this thoughtful and informative discussion on the law. Plus my area of expertise. So, <laughs> all right. Well, Hedgehog in Space, thank you so much for being a member. And if you have any other comments or things we got wrong or things you want to address, let us know. Always happy to have areas of expertise represented in the community. I am yeah, fortunately I'm... not writing PlayStation Network terms of service every day, but I am negotiating service agreements and terms almost every day. So it is something that I know quite well, but I wouldn't characterize it necessarily as expertise. So... Do let me know. And thank you so much again for being a member. Thanks everybody for being a member or for just watching us or listening to us. And let me know how you are enjoying the new key points and other podcast AI stuff we talked about last week briefly. Uh, I'm enjoying getting those things up and running within the descriptions and whatnot. And I think that they're going to work a little bit better and get more stuff out to the podcast streams better in the long run. So let me know how you're reacting to that. Uh, either in the comments, which I might actually be able to read if I ever get my monitor back up and running, or right now in the chat. Mm -hmm. I apologize for not being better able to converse with you on these topics. I really did think I had everything fixed. If you followed me on the BitCast on Sunday, you saw we were on for two and a half hours. And honestly, I think this is more of a footfall kind of situation because the computer and everything else just shut off real quickly. And then I couldn't get the monitor back up and running. So it'll probably work just fine as soon as we finish the show. Uh, but... I do apologize. Two in a row is not what I'm looking for from my quality output here, but I think we had a good conversation and I'm glad we got to have it. 
and we could still hear you like we could still hear some of the so it was good that you didn't say anything that might have caused you <laughs> trouble because i might have had some words <laughs> like you know it's funny last week somebody came into the comments and said i was waiting for some unexpected swears when things were going wrong and i'm like yeah i i, I really don't in real life it's not just a youtube persona so <laughs> no it's i didn't know what I was broadcasting if I was broadcasting anything. So I was cognizant of that. Yeah, no, I, I probably would have, you know, I, I would have had some words if suddenly yeah. my computer drops out. It's like mother. <laughs> no, it sucked. And it's, so. you know, it's, it's a number of days of computer fiascos in a row, but I'm very glad to have everybody still here. More than 300 people watching us. Ian, thank you so much for being here and for being oh. a great uh, combatant <laughs> slash debate team partner on Twitter and elsewise. Uh, and for everything else that you do, guys, check out Runkle of the Bailey. He's always having conversations of interest in law and a lot in tech. So if you like any of that stuff there, go check him out. I will add a link in the description uh, after this. And as soon as I have my system back up and running in a way that I can operate from. Otherwise, thank you everybody for being here. And I will see you on the next Virtual Legality or Hangouts and Headlines, which, as I said, is is likely to be Friday. Tuesday, Friday, Sunday on this channel seems to be a, a schedule that is working for me. And co-counsel here apparently has a note. So hang on one second. There are two really good questions. There are two really good questions, says co-counsel. What are they? One, are you going to be doing a GTA 6 video? Am I going to be doing a GTA 6 video? No, you can see my thoughts on the GTA 6 trailer on Twitter slash X, if you're interested in them, I wasn't super enthused by it. I thought it looked like more Grand Theft Auto. I preferred the 80s vibe of the previous Vice City. I'm sure it will be great. Anybody would be a fool to judge against a Rockstar open world title, but it's not really my thing. I don't have a lot to add. I'm not going to be parsing out the secrets that you can find on somebody's t-shirt or something like that. So that's that's not going to be on the channel, but I appreciate the question. Would this make you negotiate terms any differently in the future? Would this make me negotiate terms any differently in the future? Well, so I'm usually negotiating on behalf of a company, one way or the other, right? Might be in the PlayStation seat, might be in the Discovery seat, might be in a completely different seat related to a completely different set of transactions and platforms. But generally speaking, I don't think this in and of itself changes my philosophy and thoughts on this because these are things that I knew already and were things that I was cognizant of in the landscape. I just don't think most people do know it. And I am trying to help inform to the extent I can so that people hold folks feet to the fire when they can, right? I said, it takes two to tango. I think discovery probably asked for more money as part of their licensing deal. And Sony said it wasn't worth it, but Sony is the one that is not entering into that contract and having its consumers lose out on property that they thought that they had rightly purchased. And I do think it's worthwhile to note that and to discount the money that you spend in Sony's licensing house because they're not taking care of you properly. So, I mean, I, I do think that all of that are things you can think about. And if the dominoes start falling where all of these things happen across stores, then you can really start thinking about pulling out of digital entirely. One of the things I said in the Studio Canal video, which I didn't say here because I really think this is something that people should be noticing a little bit more at this point, is that I think all of the digital storefronts were probably mad at Sony and the Studio Canal issue last year. They're probably mad at the Discovery issue this year, although probably because of the Warner Brothers Discovery thing and all the changes over there, not as much so. But 
the more a digital storefront does this, the more people are going to discount the value of digital products across all stores. And so they're, they're competing, but they're also in it together in terms of just faith in the process and what buying a digital piece of property is going to mean in the future. And Sony continues to kind of chip away at that value in a way that I think is going to be deleterious to all of the digital uh, storefronts ultimately. And so that's going to be an interesting thing to follow in the years to come. So thank you for the questions. If you really want to see that contract, I mean, I'll just ask the, I guess, ask the question, how much do you think it would affect those contract negotiations if Sony ends up being liable for all of these and has to refund all of these purchases? Uh, if, if Sony winds up liable for this for some reason, I think the most likely outcome I can see is that Sony looks at its current contracts with its content providers, which again are going to be years old in general because they've been doing a digital storefront for a while and pulls purchasability of anything that doesn't have appropriate protections for the transition of a terminated license. So I would, I would think that Sony and perhaps even other parties within the, the digital ecosystem would start reducing what's on their stores for contracts they don't think were properly negotiated. And so I think you might get a little bit more transparency as to what was risky purchases from those stores because you're not gonna be able to make them anymore. Is that a bad thing? I don't think so, but it might be a bad thing for competition in the storefront for a short period of time, the transition period. I suspect you'd also see Sony saying, listen, we want to sell these things as like a forever license the terms have to be that you can't like discovery that you can't take it back later. This has got to be a forever license to us for this purpose too. Yeah, Um, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think most of these storefronts have, have negotiated for those kinds of things. I suspect at some point in the past, Sony was playing a little, uh, cheap, a little low cost on some of these negotiations, because in general, what I tell people is you can negotiate basically anything into a commercial contract. But the more you get, the more you pay for. And in this case, Sony's paying money for the licenses to pass through their store. And so the royalties might've been a little bit higher with a little bit more consumer protections. There might've been other things that Sony didn't like. There might be all those things applied to this renewal period that they don't want. And it might be completely unreasonable. Discovery might be asking for the moon or ridiculous things from Sony. And if we knew all the facts, we'd be on Sony's side. But the fact of the matter is people purchase these TV shows they purchased this discovery content. They're not going to have access to it anymore. And Sony were the ones that could have prevented that by negotiating with discovery. And I think it's worth it to say, Hey, Sony, you got to get your ducks in a row. Uh, and if that means a consumer class action, if that means other legislative action, I think that is something that we should be looking at because I don't think this is okay. I just think people should know that it can happen. And that right as it stands right now, the terms of service basically allow them to do that. All right, now I have to see what buttons I'm even hitting here. You're going to accidentally get a Lawyers and Dragons intro. Uh, Folks, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for joining me every time we live stream. I really appreciate it. I'll see you on the next one. Ian, Runkle of the Bailey, thank you so much. And I will see you on the next one as well. Well, maybe. Who knows? (laughs) Maybe I'll see you in the chat. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.